I have to put you on to Armoire, the convenient solution to effortless, fresh, and stylish dressing. With an Armoire membership, you can curate the perfect wardrobe with high-quality, unique brands tailored specifically to your taste. Simply take a five-minute style quiz, select items from your personalized closet, then your chosen styles arrive at your doorstep in as little as two days. When it's time for a wardrobe refresh, just swap out your current pieces for new-to-you styles. I go from professional to the carpool pickup line, so I need a diverse wardrobe. With Armoire, I always have something fresh and on-trend for any occasion, without the clutter. I recently edited my wardrobe to staple pieces only because Armoire allows me to add new pieces monthly and return them just in time for me to do it all over again. And by renting, rather than constantly buying new clothes, I'm contributing to sustainability. Armoire is currently helping me through my chic era with all the high fashion and edgy options that I am loving. And the empowering aspect of supporting a women-founded and women-led business is so cool. With their personalized styling suggestions and diverse designer offerings, Armoire has helped me define and refine my personal style, even as trends evolve and my body changes. Whether it's a date night, a professional event, a formal affair, or just a trip to the grocery store, Armoire ensures that I am always dressed to impress effortlessly. Right now, my listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murderish. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murderish to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. Wearable technology may seem like a modern innovation, but the concept is older than we realize. According to the website Tech Target, the first wearable tech emerged in the 1970s with the invention of a calculator wristwatch. Decades later, Technology has now become a lot more sophisticated. It seems like just about everyone these days is wearing an Apple Watch or a Fitbit to help achieve fitness goals and track steps. In the case we're examining today, the victim's wearable accessory was actually used as a tool to try to solve her murder. Two days before Christmas in 2015, 39-year-old mother of two, Connie DeBate, was found shot to death in her Connecticut home. As detectives scrambled for answers, a small device worn on her hip was key in learning the truth about her death. This is Jamie, and you're listening to Murderish. Join me as I walk you through the case known as the Fitbit murder involving Connie DeBate. This case takes us to the northeastern area of Connecticut, to the town of Ellington in Tallinn County. Once known as a farming town, Ellington has evolved into a suburban bedroom community of roughly 16,000 residents. Connie Margotta was born on July 31, 1976, in Rockville, a village within the town of Vernon, Connecticut. Her father, Kenneth, was a mechanical engineer who designed parts for nuclear reactors. 
Cindy Margotta was a doting mother to their three daughters, Marlise, Connie, and Leslie, and their son Keith. Most of Connie's formative years were spent in Ellington, which was much more rural in the 1980s and 90s. It was the kind of childhood most people dream of having, growing up in a safe area with a close-knit group of friends and a stable home environment. Friends who attended Ellington High School with Connie recall her being energetic, upbeat, and fun to be around. She made friends easily, and teachers considered her an exemplary student. Connie's happy childhood shaped her into a kind and thoughtful young woman. It helped to have parents who were very much in love, modeling the kind of strong marriage Connie hoped to have someday. When she enrolled at the University of Connecticut in 1995, Connie dreamed of meeting her romantic match. As she entered college, though, Connie was focused on getting a career off the ground. At UConn, she majored in health systems management. The senior year of her bachelor's program was spent working at Manchester Hospital as the director of KidSafe. In this role, Connie arranged health and safety presentations for parents and children. She loved helping people, but decided to shift toward behind-the-scenes work after graduation. According to her LinkedIn, Connie had a short stint working as an insurance underwriter for a year. Then she explored a career in medical sales, landing a job as a respiratory sales specialist in the Hartford area. In 2008, when British company Reckitt Benkiser acquired the practice where she worked, Connie became a pharmaceutical sales rep. With her easygoing personality and willingness to expand her skills, Connie excelled in this new role. It was around the time Connie was working in Hartford when she met Richard DeBate, who everyone called Rick. The details of how they met haven't been publicized, but they quickly started dating. Their friends approved of the relationship, saying Rick and Connie balanced each other out. Connie's friend, Allie Clark, told People about Rick. He's very funny in an offbeat kind of way, and she was the kindest woman you'd ever meet, the type who would never say no if you needed something. They were different people, but they seemed to really like and respect each other. Allie added that Connie was known as the responsible one, while Rick was more like an overgrown kid. Like Connie, Rick also seemed to have a typical and happy childhood. Their birthdays were within days of each other in July of 1976, and they were raised roughly 13 miles apart. Rick's parents, Richard Sr. and Julie DeBate, raised him in Manchester, Connecticut, a large suburb of Hartford. Following his 1995 graduation from Manchester High School, Rick attended Manchester Community College with his sights set on working in IT. Friends considered him goofy and a little eccentric. He loved superheroes and comics into adulthood. According to the Hartford Current, one year, Rick showed up to Manchester's annual road race event dressed in a full Superman costume. Despite his quirks, Rick had a successful technical career, working in various roles. His positions ranged from systems analyst to field technician before he moved up to systems administrator. It's the ultimate irony that technology would end up unraveling the life he and Connie built together. The couple were married on July 4th, 2003. Three years later, Connie learned she was pregnant with their first son, Richard Jr., or RJ for short. 
that's when she and Rick decided to upgrade their living situation. They planned to have at least one more child, and Connie thought her hometown was a great place to raise a family. Rick and Connie purchased a colonial-style home on Birchview Drive in Ellington, which sat on three acres of property. Connie was delighted to live close to her parents. As a new mom, she needed their help. Kenneth and Cindy were eager to bond with RJ, and Connie knew they'd be amazing grandparents. In 2009, Connie gave birth to a second son, Connor, who was born with a birth defect. Connie wanted the absolute best care for her son, so she made frequent road trips for Connor to see a specialist at Boston's Children's Hospital. Working full-time and being an attentive mother to her boys meant Connie had a lot on her plate. Her father, Kenneth, had also been recently diagnosed with leukemia. After receiving a stem cell transplant, Connie rushed to his aid any chance she got. It was a lot to juggle, but while her mother was at work, Connie acted as a part-time caregiver to her father. Somehow, Connie still made time to volunteer at Boston's Children's Hospital and Ellington's Volunteer Ambulance Corps. She was also involved in the PTA at her son's school and was known to deliver meals to sick neighbors. It was indisputable. Connie had a heart of gold, and it shined through in everything she did. It's hard to believe it would all come crashing down only a few years later. Connie was viewed as a crucial part of the Ellington community, and everyone adored her. Nobody considered that someone might want to harm her until it actually happened. On December 23, 2015, at 10.15 in the morning, Connecticut State Police received a 911 call from a LiveWatch security employee. He told dispatch he'd gone to the debate's Birchview Drive residence after a panic alarm went off. After waiting for someone to answer the door, the security employee entered the home, and he was startled by what he saw inside. As stated in a police affidavit, the security employee told dispatch he saw blood drops near the home's basement and trailing toward the kitchen. He noticed the air was smoky, and he heard moans of pain in the distance. In the kitchen, the security worker found Rick DeBate sprawled on the floor, zip-tied to a toppled metal folding chair. Luckily, the children were in school at the time. Fifteen minutes after the 911 call, Sergeant Patrick Sweeney arrived on scene. He was soon joined by canine handlers and several state troopers. Rick was bound by his left ankle and right wrist, but oddly, his left arm was free. According to the Hartford Current, Rick told investigators a masked intruder wearing camouflage had entered the home and attacked him. The assailant had chased Connie down the basement stairs with a gun and fired three times. A short time later, the person returned to the kitchen to restrain Rick. In the middle of being bound, Rick said he managed to set his attacker's mask on fire with a blowtorch. Then, the intruder fled. Right away, state authorities did not believe Rick's story, but they needed to find Connie and assess her condition. While troopers accompanied Sergeant Sweeney to the basement, police dogs sniffed around the property for the perpetrator's scent. 
In the main area of the basement, there was a large pool of blood, a pile of burnt paper, and several tools including a hammer, a box cutter, and a blowtorch. Sergeant Sweeney entered the mechanical room that housed the boiler. On the floor, he spotted a Ruger 357 Magnum revolver, and in the corner, collapsed against the cellar wall, lay Connie DeBate's lifeless body, showing no vital signs she was pronounced dead at the scene. To Sergeant Sweeney, this didn't seem like a random home invasion gone wrong. Connie had been executed. Three canines were spread out inside and around the debate's yard, but none of them signaled on a stranger's scent. While Rick was treated by an EMS paramedic for superficial knife wounds, one of the dogs tried to climb up into the ambulance toward him. If there had been an intruder who fled on foot, it seemed unlikely that all three highly trained canines would not have picked up a scent trail. Nothing was stolen, so it seemed even less likely that a criminal would break in and leave empty-handed. The house looked clean and organized, and there were no clear indications of a break-in. It didn't take a seasoned detective to know that Rick's account did not match what first responders observed. A thorough investigation and a bit of help from Connie from beyond the grave would indicate that nothing in this case was as it seemed. There was a lot more to the story, and some of the details detectives were about to uncover were stranger than fiction. Why does laundry detergent come in these heavy, massive plastic jugs? We seem to accept that we have to handle these inconvenient and awkward jugs every single time we do the laundry. And most of these jugs contain like 90% water, which seems unnecessary, given that there's already water in the washing machine. And maybe we're even paying extra for the water in the detergent. Unfortunately, most of those big plastic detergent jugs don't get recycled, leading to 700 million detergent jugs ending up in our landfills every single year. And I know what you're thinking, what the heck do you want me to do about this? I mean, we can't just stop doing laundry, right? But here's what you can do. You can switch to Earth Breeze. Earth Breeze has made the whole concept of detergent better. With my new Earth Breeze laundry detergent eco sheets, I'm able to ditch those heavy, weird detergent jugs. Eco sheets look just like dryer sheets, but all you have to do is toss them in your washer instead. No measuring, no mess. The packaging is also compact, biodegradable, and plastic-free. And they're safe for the environment and your family. EarthBreeze Eco Sheets are vegan, cruelty-free, and dermatologically tested to be safe for sensitive skin. And with their Buy One, Give 10 initiative, each purchase donates 10 loads of detergent to a charitable cause of your choice. A whopping 30 million detergent loads have already been donated. These little sheets can turn a chore into an act of kindness. As a busy mom and entrepreneur, one of my favorite things about EarthBreeze is that I don't even have to go to the store. EarthBreeze offers a flexible subscription that can be adjusted, paused, or canceled by you at any time penalty-free. I love efficiency and convenience, and that's exactly what EarthBreeze delivers. Not only am I getting a powerful clean for my clothes, but I'm also doing something charitable and good for the planet without even having to leave my house. 
I know it sounds too good to be true, but you won't know until you try it. If you don't like it, EarthBreeze will give you a full refund. You don't even have to send it back. They are confident that you'll love it as much as I do. Now's the time to try EarthBreeze because right now my listeners can subscribe and save 40%. Go to earthbreeze.com slash murderish to get started. That's earthbreeze.com slash murderish for 40% off. earthbreeze.com slash murderish. And just like that, a quiet Ellington neighborhood lined with upscale homes was swarming with uniformed officers investigating the scene of a homicide. Rick had multiple lacerations scattered around his body. Most of the cuts were superficial, though some needed stitches. He was treated at Hartford Hospital, where detectives conducted their first interview. Detective Frederick Abrams asked him for a physical description of the intruder. As reported by the Connecticut Insider, Rick said the man was about six foot two with a stocky build and had a deep voice like Vin Diesel. Then detectives Brett Longevin and Jeffrey Payette sat down with Rick for a recorded bedside interview. One detective asked Rick if an investigation would uncover problems in his marriage, to which he responded, yes and no. Rick then made a confession. He'd been having an affair for the last seven months. Although he and Sarah Ganser had known each other since they were 14, they'd only started a romantic relationship in the spring of 2015. Shortly after the affair began, Sarah learned she was pregnant with Rick's child. Rick swore to detectives that Connie knew about the pregnancy. In fact, he said she was actively involved. As reported by the Hartford Current, Rick told detectives that he and Connie desperately wanted a third child, but had struggled to get pregnant. Connie was nearing 40 years old and had some health issues. If successful in getting pregnant, it would be considered a geriatric pregnancy, which came with a unique set of risks. To avoid jeopardizing Connie's health, they explored other options. Rick said that he and Connie decided that Sarah would be their surrogate, They'd discussed artificial insemination, but Rick admitted he'd gotten Sarah pregnant by traditional means. According to Rick, this was all above board and openly communicated to Connie, who was excited to co-parent the baby. He acknowledged the arrangement was unconventional. According to the Hartford Current, Rick mused to detectives, this situation popped up like a frickin' soap opera. He hoped being candid about the extramarital relationship might ease suspicions and earn detectives' trust. But this information had the opposite effect. To detectives, an affair was a strong potential motive. They logged it in their heads and pressed on, documenting Rick's statement. For almost six hours, Rick walked them through the events of the day leading up to the home invasion. Earlier that morning, Rick had taken his sons to the bus stop at approximately 8.10 and left for work 20 minutes later. Five minutes into his 30-minute commute to Bloomfield, he realized he'd forgotten his laptop. At the same time, he got an alert on his phone from his home security company, saying an alarm had been triggered. He pulled off to the side of the road for a few minutes to look at the phone notification and email his boss about being late. 
Then he drove back home. Inside, Rick said he was startled by a sound upstairs, but thought it might be one of the family cats. When he went to check it out, however, he was faced with a masked intruder rustling through the contents of a walk-in closet. A struggle followed, with Rick being overpowered by the armed stranger. He demanded Rick's wallet, credit cards, and ATM PIN number for each card. Rick said that's when Connie unexpectedly arrived home, completely unaware of the danger she was in. Rick shouted for her to run before the attacker pushed him down the second-floor staircase and chased Connie to the basement. He heard gunshots in the distance but wasn't sure what happened. As cited by the Hartford Current, Rick said his attacker brought him down to the basement and immobilized him with some kind of pressure point thing. Then he used zip ties to bind Rick to a folding chair. The invader then used Rick's own tools from his toolbox to torment him. Before it could be used on him, Rick said he grabbed for a blowtorch that his assailant was holding. He wrestled it away and aimed it at the masked face, saving his own life and setting the invader's mask on fire. The man swatted at his mask to extinguish the flames, retreating out a basement window. Then, Rick maneuvered himself up the basement stairs and managed to free one of his hands so he could grab his cell phone off the kitchen counter. The security system had an app that would trigger the panic alarm with a touch of a button. Rick said he'd only been bound for a minute or so before the security person arrived. According to a police affidavit, when detectives asked clarifying questions about his account, Rick responded, The more I talk to you, the less I remember. Detective Longevin started typing a written statement, though Rick seemed hazy on key details. He recalled arming their security alarm when he left for work, and that his wife had already left by that time, but the timing did not add up, based on Connie's scheduled fitness class. That morning, Connie had thrown on workout clothes to attend her weekly spin class at the Indian Valley YMCA. The Wednesday session started at 9 a.m., and the drive took less than 10 minutes, so she left around 8.45. Surveillance footage obtained from the YMCA showed Connie walking through the parking lot at 8.53, but someone at the front desk told her the class was canceled. Since it was so close to the holidays, the instructor expected people to be out of town. At that point, Connie headed back home. Detectives needed to construct a timeline, but Rick's version of events was very inconsistent. When canvassing the area, neighbors consistently told investigators they hadn't seen anyone suspicious in the area. If a masked intruder had broken into the debate home, someone would have seen something. While waiting for the crime scene to be fully processed, search warrants allowed investigators to examine the couple's digital footprints. In the days that followed, information was retrieved from the home security alarm, Rick and Connie's cell phone records, their Facebook accounts, and Rick's personal laptop. Police also pulled data from Connie's Fitbit One, which she wore on her hip every day. The device was found on her body at the scene of the murder. Though it was unconventional to analyze a fitness tracker during a murder investigation, 
it was worth exploring any potential leads. Based on records from the security company, Connie returned home at exactly 9.23 a.m., entering through the garage door. From her home IP address, she used her iPhone to post two videos on Facebook and messaged a friend between 9.40 and 9.46. The Fitbit logged Connie's final movement at 10.05 a.m. The home's panic alarm was triggered for the first time just six minutes later at 10.11, according to the alarm company records. These findings revealed several pivotal details. Rick's claim that the alarm had gone off while he was driving to work was impossible. Even more damning, Connie's Fitbit logged her moving around a full hour after she was supposedly killed, and her Facebook post was timestamped 45 minutes after Rick said she was killed. Detectives then took a much closer look at Rick, who seemed to be lying about more than a few details. They wondered, did Rick even leave the house the day his wife was killed, as he'd claimed? It seemed doubtful after analyzing his phone and internet records, especially when the email Rick sent to his boss logged his home IP address, not his cellular network. He hadn't used his cell phone to send the email, and no alarm had gone off at the time Rick claimed. Of course, detectives wanted to know what else he might be lying about. Suspiciously, Rick had been on the YMCA's website at 9.18 that morning. He'd been looking at their fitness class schedule. Five minutes later, Connie arrived home from her canceled class. What really happened in the 50 minutes between Connie coming home and the live watch employee answering Rick's call for help? Answering that question was crucial in solving the case. An analysis of physical evidence from the scene delivered mixed results. Swabs of the gun's handle grip matched Rick's DNA. But since the gun belonged to him, this wasn't concrete evidence linking Rick to the crime. As reported by the Hartford Current, a gunshot residue test performed on Rick's hands that day was negative, but residue was found on his shirt. The ambiguity of physical evidence made digital evidence that much more important. According to NBC News, in July and September, Rick had used some questionable search terms in his browser, including phrases like deadly over-the-counter pill combinations and tasteless poison easily available. These findings were damning, no doubt, but detectives continued pressing on with their investigation. Sarah, Rick's mistress, was brought in for questioning and she proved to be cooperative throughout the investigation. Rick had constantly lied to her, promising at one point that he'd leave Connie and sell the house. And then, just a few weeks later, he flip-flopped telling Sarah he was trying to work things out with Connie for the sake of their boys. Sarah told detectives that she never wanted to destroy the marriage and had never asked Rick to leave his wife. But the pregnancy seemed to change things for Rick. When he found out, he told Sarah that he'd begin divorce discussions with Connie. Months passed and nothing changed, so Sarah decided she could raise their daughter alone. 
It was time to get off the roller coaster Rick had put her on. As reported by the Connecticut Insider, Sarah wrote on Facebook that she and Rick had been in love since junior high. They'd been involved in several short-lived affairs when Rick was first married. Sarah told detectives Rick had been emotionally yo-yoing her for years. He just couldn't seem to make up his mind about what he wanted. During Sarah's interview, detectives tried to assess her level of involvement, obviously wanting to know if she knew something terrible was going to happen to Connie. They also wondered whether she may have suggested to Rick that their lives would be a lot more simple if he wasn't married. Detectives ultimately decided that Sarah was just as surprised by Connie's death as the rest of the community. According to People.com, Rick had texted Sarah the day before Connie's murder to make plans. But it was a normal interaction. She said Rick gave no indication that he planned to harm his wife. Sarah was cleared of any suspicion at that point. Connie's friends and family were also interviewed. Detectives were looking to form an impression of the debate's marriage, Rick's character, and Connie's emotional state leading up to her tragic death. Connie had a lot of close friends and was extremely social. Detectives learned that in the hours before her death, she had called several friends. Connie loved bringing people together, and this time of year made her feel even more sentimental than usual. Hosting a potluck would be so much fun, she decided. It had been way too long since her friend group were all in the same room. Connie made the rounds, calling her coupled friends to personally invite them for a gathering. It was just like Connie to be so thoughtful, her friends told detectives in so many words. Chillingly, phone records revealed that Connie had spoken to her friend Kate Frost just 30 minutes before the 911 call was made. During a police interview, Kate said Connie had joked that everyone should bring something to the potluck except her. According to the U.S. Sun, Kate explained, Connie was great at a lot of things, but cooking wasn't one of her strong suits. Connie's best friend, Audrey Haginski, told detectives she was in good spirits when they spoke that morning. She sounded excited for the upcoming gathering, and they briefly talked about Christmas plans having no idea of the danger that lay ahead. One thing my assistant Alexis and I always talk about is how much we love our pets. When our furry friends are healthy, we're happy. But since we're not mind readers, we don't always know when they're healthy. And that's why Alexis keeps raving about Pretty Litter. Unlike any other cat litter that I've heard of, Pretty Litter actually helps you monitor your cat's health, which is really cool. It does this by changing colors if something's not quite right with your cat. The change in color helps detect early signs of potential illness in cats, including urinary tract infections and kidney issues. I was so impressed when Alexis told me that her cat litter changes colors based on the health of her cat. I've never heard of that. When I had cats, all that was available was this nasty-smelling kitty litter that was just as ugly to look at. Alexis says Pretty Litter gives her peace of mind knowing that her cat, Kyrie, is healthy. 
If she sees his litter change color, she knows right away that it's time for a trip to the vet, and early detection is key to getting through so many illnesses. One of the not-so-fun sides of being a pet owner is cleaning their poop, but Pretty Litter's ultra-absorbent crystals trap odor instantly, which means no more cat bathroom smell. Pretty Litter's super light crystal base also minimizes mess and dust. Plus, the crystals last up to a month, which means less scooping and fewer trips to the trash can. Pretty Litter also ships free straight to Alexis's doorstep, so she doesn't have to carry in those heavy bags of cat litter. It just shows up at her door in a small, lightweight bag, so she never runs out. And there's not a huge container of litter taking up space and stinking up her apartment. Although I'm a dog owner right now, I love all animals and Kyrie is so freaking cute. I'd hate for him to ever get sick. With Pretty Litter, Alexis can be alerted quickly in the event he does get sick and take action to get him better. Pretty Litter helps keep her cat healthy and keeps odors down. You and your cat are going to love Pretty Litter as much as we do. Go to prettylitter.com murderish to save 20% on your first order. That's prettylitter.com murderish to save 20%. prettylitter.com murderish. Connie's friends and family were stunned when the media exposed Rick's affair. As reported by the Hartford Current, friends of the couple revealed in interviews they had little to no awareness of problems in their marriage. Some of Connie's friends recalled past conflicts over money, but to everyone else, they seemed to have a loving and healthy relationship. If Connie seemed tight-lipped about discord in her marriage, it might have been because it was a fresh wound. Things had taken a sharp downward spiral in the last year or so. If Connie suspected an affair, she didn't mention it to anyone police interviewed. Connie had toyed with the idea of leaving Rick as early as late 2014. Around that time, Connie composed a note titled, Why I Want a Divorce, with a list of reasons. According to the Hartford Current, she noted Rick taking money from accounts that didn't belong to him and said, he's an unfit parent, uncaring toward her, doesn't come home on time, and acts like a kid constantly. Audrey, Connie's closest friend, told detectives the couple had pet names for each other and that all marriages have conflict. She recalled a text conversation with Connie the day before her death. It was Connie's one day off, and she'd been on hold with Comcast for way too long. She needed someone to explain why her bill had doubled and why she was being charged for sports channels out of nowhere. Audrey testified that Connie sent her a text message about the bill, accusing Rick of feigning ignorance and lying to her. As reported by the Hartford Current, Connie wrote in the text message, once again, had to clean up his mess, Phone records confirmed an air of bitterness from Connie, according to the Hartford Current. Connie's final text message to her husband read, Great day off and Merry fucking Christmas. The reality was actually much worse than Connie thought. On top of the affair and impregnating his mistress, there was even more going on in Rick's life 
that she had no idea about, and preventing her from finding out could have been enough motive for murder. Of course, there's no rule that there has to be only one motive for murder. Money almost always factors in. As a seasoned pharmaceutical sales rep in the Northeast, Connie easily made close to six figures, and she had a sizable life insurance policy. Detectives learned that Rick had stopped making payments on his policy two years earlier. Five days after Connie's murder, Rick attempted to cash in her $475,000 life insurance policy, but the claim was denied when he was named as a suspect. In January of 2016, the Hartford Current reported that Rick had withdrawn more than $90,000 from his late wife's Fidelity investment account. Rick had been increasingly secretive about his finances. Unbeknownst to his wife, He'd opened a credit card to support his duplicitous other life. Charges on the card, cited in the Hartford Current, included flowers gifted to Sarah, bookings for a motel on the Vernon-Manchester town line, and over $1,200 spent at a Tolland strip club. The investigation veered closer toward a conclusion. Rick DeBate could not be trusted. His digital footprint, his double life, his tendency to alter the narrative to make himself look better, it all tipped the scale toward guilt. Detectives from the Connecticut Eastern District Crime Squad finally had enough incriminating evidence to make an arrest. As summarized by the Hartford Current, a 48-page warrant highlighted discrepancies in Rick's statements to police and how digital evidence had completely invalidated his statements. In April of 2017, 16 months after the homicide, Rick DeBate was arrested on the charges of murder, tampering with evidence, and making a false statement to police. He was held on a $1 million bond, which was posted five days later. The community was on edge knowing an alleged killer was out on bail. Ellington resident Linda Ryan said to the journal Inquirer, he murdered that girl and he's walking around free. It's like a cloud over the whole town. Connie's family and friends were also fearful. Many refused to talk to the media out of concern that Rick might retaliate. Longtime family friend and retired state police lieutenant Wayne Rio acted as a spokesman for Connie's loved ones. As quoted by the Hartford Current, he focused on the victim, saying, she spent her whole life focused on helping her family and friends, displayed a keen sense of humor, and brought joy to all who knew her. Her smile lit up a room and was infectious. She was humble, performed acts of kindness without recognition, and her generosity and compassion for those in need were her trademark. In all of Connie's achievements, she took the most pride and joy in being a loving and devoted mother to RJ and Connor. Now, Connie's little boys had to grow up without a mother. Their Aunt Leslie and her husband took them in and were eventually granted full custody. There was another consequence to Rick's arrest. He was removed as executor of the couple's estate 
and replaced by Connie's sister, Marlise. According to Fox News, in November of 2017, Marlise filed a wrongful death suit against Rick for unspecified monetary damages. The matter was settled out of court. Another tragedy befell the Margotta family when Connie's father, Kenneth, passed away in 2019 after a long battle with leukemia. He never got to see his daughter's killer brought to justice. Pre-trial proceedings were underway by late 2018, with jury selection set for March 2019. Just weeks after a panel of jurors was formed, however, the global pandemic sent the world into chaos. Again and again, Rick's court dates were postponed, frustrating both sides of the case. At a press conference quoted by the Hartford Current, defense attorney Hubert Santos said, My client is innocent of these charges, and he looks forward to being vindicated after trial. In August of 2021, Rick made his first court appearance since February of 2020. A few things had changed in the previous 18 months. Rick's attorney had passed away, and a judge ordered a new round of jury selection. Too much time had passed since the original panel was assembled, and some jurors had relocated, while others were personally impacted by the coronavirus. A new jury was finally chosen in February of 2022, with a trial set for April, and this time, the date stuck. The Fitbit murder trial began on April 5, 2022, at Rockville Superior Courthouse. Over the course of five weeks, 600 evidentiary exhibits and testimony from 130 people would be presented. In opening statements, Tallinn County State Attorney Matthew C. Gdansky alleged that Rick had killed his wife to keep his indiscretions hidden. He couldn't risk her finding out the truth and ruining his reputation as a loyal family man. Prosecutors suspected that Rick was having multiple affairs, though any allegations around this theory were not permitted at trial. Like his predecessor, Rick's new defense attorney, Trent LaLima, insisted that his client was innocent. He argued that Rick had also been a victim that day and that the unidentified perpetrator was still out there. Early on, detectives Brett Longevin and Jeffrey Payette testified about the crime scene and their subsequent interview with the defendant in the hospital. They noticed the smell of gunshot residue right away upon arriving at the Birchview Drive property and were immediately suspicious of Rick's version of events. A doctor who'd treated Rick's wounds at Hartford Hospital took the stand. In his opinion, the injuries appeared to be self-inflicted. Detectives had decided it was part of Rick's plan to stage a crime scene to evade suspicion. Several friends testified that Connie did not believe in guns, yet her husband had purchased a gun two months before the murder. It wasn't clear if Connie knew about the gun, but the timing of Rick's purchase strengthened the state's case. Associate Medical Examiner Frank Evangelista took the stand to summarize Connie's autopsy. The Journal Inquirer reported that Evangelista said there were two fatal gunshot wounds to the abdomen and back of the head. 
Since there were no exit wounds, he believed the bullets remained in her body. Surprisingly, Rick took the stand in his own defense. As reported by NBC, Rick was asked directly if he had staged the bloody crime scene and planted evidence. The questioning got so intense that Rick's attorney requested a mistrial, but the motion was denied. According to the Daily Beast, Rick tried to paint himself in a favorable light by asserting that he'd been working on his marriage. He testified that days before her death, he and Connie had gone away for a romantic weekend in Vermont. The couple had even posted photos together on their individual Facebook feeds. Rick's mistress, Sarah, had told investigators she noticed the photos he posted and realized he and Connie were not in the midst of a divorce, though Rick had recently claimed they were. According to the Daily Beast, prosecutors asserted the only way out of the mess he'd made was to get rid of Connie. Rick responded that he loved his wife, but it hadn't always been smooth sailing. He claimed they first discussed divorce back in 2014, a statement that remains unsubstantiated. If prosecutors were right about this crime being a cover-up, Rick clearly had not factored in Connie's Fitbit. If this trial had taken place years earlier, it's likely the state would not have had much of a case. After all, investigators were lacking physical evidence. With modern technology undermining Rick's attempts to manipulate the details, the state's case rested heavily on electronic records from the home security alarm and Connie's Fitbit. This wasn't the first crime where detectives attempted to use a wearable activity tracker to solve it, but it also wasn't common. Prosecutors understood that jurors might need some convincing to consider it solid evidence, so someone with relevant credentials was called to testify. Dr. Keith Diaz, assistant professor of behavioral health at Columbia's University School of Medicine, is considered an expert in wearable devices. He's testified at other trials that factored in Fitbit data as evidence. According to NBC, he conducted a peer-reviewed study on the Fitbit One's technology and accuracy, telling jurors, I don't have much doubt about the device not having timeline correct because it syncs it's just automatic. But Rick's attorney continued to harp on the possibility of glitches. NBC reported, Lalima asked Dr. Diaz to look at the time on a courtroom computer monitor, which read 1.16 p.m. The actual time was 12.58 p.m. While this may have exemplified how certain technology can be unreliable, the Fitbit's timestamp needed to be off by an entire hour to align with Rick's proposed timeline. A piece of technology being off by 18 minutes was believable, but an entire hour? That seemed improbable and did little to sway the jury in the defendant's favor. The jury were even less convinced of Rick's innocence when his mistress testified. According to multiple sources, Sarah confirmed that she was seven months pregnant at the time of Connie's murder but she adamantly denied any knowledge of Rick's intent to harm Connie. 
It's likely the jury pitied her when she explained how Rick had toyed with her emotions for years using false promises. The state rested its case by pointing out the defendant's pattern of deception. On the outside, the debate's marriage and their family life appeared picture-perfect. Rick had only confided in one friend about his sloppy affair and how much pressure he was under. Prosecutors theorized Rick had hatched a plan to kill his wife and stage a home invasion as his life was about to unravel with the birth of a child he was having with another woman, as quoted by the Record Journal. In closing statements, the defense maintained electronic evidence was unreliable and that the state had failed to fulfill its burden of proof. Would the jury agree and think relying on the victim's electronic tracker was too far-fetched to prove guilt? Or did Rick have enough motive to pull the trigger? Deliberations lasted just under four hours before the jury returned with a verdict. On May 11th, Rick DeBate was found guilty on all three counts. It was a welcomed outcome for those who were close to Connie, who'd waited what felt like an eternity. Wayne Rio said that Connie's family hoped the sentence handed down would put Rick away for life. He told the Hartford Current, Connie is no longer present for family gatherings, holidays, or her children's milestones. Connie was essentially sentenced to death, while this convicted murderer has been living his life while out on parole for six and a half years. Rick faced up to 60 years for the murder charge alone. At that point in time, Rick was 45 years old. No matter what, he'd be spending the rest of his life in prison. At an August 18th sentencing hearing, the courtroom heard tearful testimony from the victim's loved ones. As reported by the Hartford Current, family members claimed that Rick had spent all of the money from the couple's estate, which was mainly earned by Connie. Their sons were left with under $10 to inherit. Rick remained stoic throughout the three-hour hearing. He listened emotionlessly as Connie's family begged the judge for a harsh sentence. Rick's loved ones asked for leniency. As his lawyer pointed out, Rick had no prior criminal record or history of violence. When he was given the opportunity to speak, Rick continued to insist he was innocent. As reported by Patch, he said prosecutors were out to seek victory over truth, and Rick vowed he would never stop pursuing justice for Connie and my own justice. But his track record of deceit rendered his words meaningless. After sitting through hours of victim impact statements, Judge Klatt was ready to announce Rick's sentence. He got 60 years for the murder conviction, with five consecutive years tacked on for evidence tampering. A year was ordered to be served concurrently for the false statement conviction. With Rick's sentencing, Connie's loved ones were relieved to have gotten past the hardest part, having to relive the details of her death, while international news outlets clamored for comment. Now they could privately mourn the profound loss and keep Connie's memory alive for the sake of sentiment, not for the purpose of prosecution. While Rick DeBate was having an affair and being less than a loving father, Connie DeBate 
gave as much love and affection to her sons as possible. Cindy Margotta said to the Connecticut Insider about her daughter, 90% of her was in the heart of her boys. She did a beautiful job. She worked hard to cure one of them. I think that's her legacy, that she brought up two beautiful boys. Connor and RJ, who were just six and nine years old when Connie was killed, were teenagers by the time their father went to trial. Rick took more away from his own children than he could ever realize when he pulled that trigger twice. Moving forward after losing a loved one to murder is never easy. Connie's friend, Allie Clark, commented to People.com, It's the saddest thing. I feel for the boys because they'll have to grow up knowing that their father killed their mother. How do you deal with that? That's a question for Rick to ponder while serving what is essentially a life sentence at the McDougal Walker Correctional Institute. Hey everyone, your help is needed with a missing persons case. Liliana and Daniela Moreno have been missing since May 30th of 2016 from their hometown of Durrell, Florida. The mother and daughter were last seen on that date at or around a Home Depot store in Hialeah, around six miles from where they reside. Liliana is described as a Hispanic female with brown hair and brown eyes. She'd be around 49 years old today. Her daughter, Daniela, is also a Hispanic female with brown hair and brown eyes. She'd be approximately 15 years old now. The FBI is offering a $25,000 reward for any information regarding their whereabouts. I'm going to leave a link to the FBI's website in the show notes for this episode. If you or anyone you know has any information on this missing persons case, please reach out to the FBI. Thanks so much for joining me on this episode of Murderish. Listen up, Murderish fans. If you'd rather listen to the podcast with no interruptions, you can do so by signing up for Murderish Behind the Mic on Patreon. As a patron, you can also get access to bonus content and other cool perks. To sign up for Murderish Behind the Mic, visit Murderish.com or just go to Patreon.com and search for Murderish there. I want to give a big thank you to Lauren J., Anne-Marie H., and Katie W., for joining Murderish Behind the Mic on Patreon. Thank you guys so much. I'm really looking forward to interacting with you all on Patreon. If you need more podcasts to listen to, I host another true crime podcast called Dirty Money Moves, Women in White Collar Crime. The podcast follows my investigation of a woman I met a few years ago, a woman who turned out to be a prolific scam artist. It's a wild true story that even has ties to the Michael Jackson scandal. You can subscribe to Dirty Money Moves wherever you're listening right now. There are a bunch of episodes for you to binge right now. You guys, do me the biggest favor and tell your friends about Murderish or leave the show a positive rating and review in any podcast app. You can also show your support by wearing a Murderish t-shirt while you're out and about. And trust me, it's a great conversation starter. Just go to Murderish.com and you can buy t-shirts, bags, coffee mugs, and a lot more. Make sure you're following Murderish on Instagram and TikTok at Murderish Podcast. Both platforms are a great way to get to know me better because I do a lot of funny videos, short true crime stories, and everything in between. And I love engaging with people on social media. So check it out. 
Murderish sound design and audio editing is done by Trevin of Live Laugh Larceny podcast. This episode was researched and written by Allison Schwartz. Visit Murderish.com for a list of sources used for this episode. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.